Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the illustrious Lion's Den in Monument, Colorado. Thank you, Derek and Susan Fulmer, for letting us use this place. And I am here with James Anderson, president of New Canaan Society. James, first question, what you smoking? I am having something new, a Garagiste, maybe. I think the official, let's see. Yeah, Garagiste by Illusione Cigars. Yeah, which is really solid. My first outing with it and certainly additive to my afternoon. So Yeah, yeah. we got a bunch of Illusione Cigars from Howard over to Illusione who wanted to donate a bunch to uh, Holy Smokes for the guests. And so I am smoking... Illusiones Ultra. It's a smaller cigar, but it's been rated 94 by Cigar Aficionado Magazine and also 92 by Half Wheel. And so this is a really, really nice stick that I'm very pleased with. Mine is no slouch. I'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a big one, too. Mine's a little bit smaller, but uh, yours is a nice big one. That's a man-sized cigar. Don't read into it. (laughs) So what are your first thoughts about it? It's really nice. Like I chose it just because it's the middle of the afternoon. And for me, I like to have something that's not too strong, you know, and then I choose stronger ones in the, maybe in the evening, but it's kind of the Hemingway short story (laughs) size, which I love how he hit those cigars are kind of equated to what sort of a commitment you're making. And, uh, so very generous. I absolutely love it. So Thank you. Well, this podcast, this episode is hopefully a nice little short story for everyone in the Holy Smokes community to get to know you a little bit more, get to know you a lot more, and then also to get to know NCS and what you guys are doing. So, James, you are a Colorado kid. I am. I grew up in the mountains of Colorado in a super small town, probably has some factor into my story, actually left in 91 to go to the small town is woodland park which is just west of colorado springs absolutely about what half hour yep 20 minutes west of the west side and it was about four thousand people when we lived there so it kind of had the small town greatness and also the small town difficulties or challenges totally especially if you're 16 17 18 and so in 91 i left to go to biola university in california where I studied film directing and screenwriting and also did work at USC. And where did that idea of getting into media come from? I actually think it was my mom. When I was maybe 15 or 16, my mom went back to school and she started really studying a lot of literature. And then Mm -hmm. she also had a couple classes in story of film or something along those lines. So I started watching films that no 16-year-old kid would choose. Um, (laughs) Like what? The Coen Brothers films. Some of those that I think are really really complex. And there's just a ton of metaphor in those. And, you know, I started looking at even older films that were, you know, done by Scorsese and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I had a great love for that. And then I read a ton So by the time I got to college, I had a pretty good education in mythology and story Mm -hmm. structure in mythology, how that mythology really is a blueprint for almost every story that we see in a traditional film. A lot of classic stuff, 
you know, Hemingway and, you know, stuff like Grapes of Wrath and <laughs> like stuff that if you were reading it as a 17, 16 year old kid, you might not appreciate it. And I think I had a deeper love for it. Interesting. And, and I think story, I mean, that carries throughout my life, but I think story is the most important and sacred thing that we have. So understanding our own story and how that drives our lives now yeah. is super important. And I think just sitting down and sharing your story is like we're doing right now. I think it's one of the most sacred, important communal things we can do. And I think even part of what we do at New Canaan Society in telling our stories, I think we kind of find some freedom and we almost always will hear part of our story and another man's story. Exactly. And that yeah. is where I think a lot of this freedom comes. And, you know, I liken our stories to like a big wind farm and that you can't see wind and you can't hear wind, but you can sure see that it is turning these enormous machines and creating power. And I think our stories have a lot of power over our now and that is something if we don't understand, I think can have massive ramifications mm -hmm. and it's often not good. And mm -hmm. it's true of my own story for sure. Yeah, I can tell you right now, that was probably the biggest reason why I wanted to start this Holy Smokes podcast wow. was because I wanted to feature other members' stories and give people a chance that when they show up to Colorado Springs or when they show up to Orange County or when they show up to Seattle or Houston or any of the other groups that we have that I'm going to visit in 2020, they have someone that they can identify with and immediately go, oh, yeah, James, when you went through that growing up in a small town, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin too. Yep. We have that connection and it's kind of a starting point for a friendship. It's absolutely a starting point. Commonality of story and experience. Tim Keller from New York is on our board and he describes the beginning of friendship as a you two moment, meaning you also. Yeah. And it can be simple things like, Hey, we went to the same college. We grew up in the same town or kind of town or even more significant things. Like I grew up in a house with abuse or alcoholism or divorce or trauma or addiction and those things are much more significant to our story. So finding commonality in that is the beginning of friendship and real vulnerable friendship is the beginning to, I think, freedom in life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And like that's uh, to me, it's kind of undeniable. Yeah, absolutely. So you went to Biola mm -hmm. and started to study for film and you said went to USC, did mm -hmm. some stuff at USC. Where'd you go after that? I actually got to do the real thing. Uh, the day after I graduated, I was hired by a film production company at Paramount Pictures called Lakeshore Entertainment. And Heard of it. I was your standard make copies, get coffee, run errands, deliver scripts all over kingdom come. Yeah. And in that process, I was saying to the people that own that company and that I was working for, I just said, there are some incredible redundancies to what you're doing here mm. and it's hugely inefficient. Could I put together a plan as to how you could do this? That would be sort of a centralized spine of 
information and scripts and stuff that you're gonna be looking for because when this comes in I make three copies I deliver them to all three floors and then they're just parked there and it doesn't really make any sense and so anyway they let me run with that and that gave me a massive advantage I think over other people of my age there huge education and so not long after I was hired by our president his name is Yanni Sigvatsen kind of one of the fathers of the music video huge art mm. scene film mm producer and he just said show up here at my house every morning and I drove with him I went to meetings back then you had real car phones so I heard all of these you know real conversations that he was having and negotiating he was doing and that was like a true apprenticeship opportunity that most people just do not have and after about two years there, the man who owned Lakeshore, and he was the sole financier of all these films, his name's Tom Rosenberg out of Chicago, which is where the Lakeshore name comes from. Mm -hmm. And he came to me and just was like, James, I want you to move upstairs and I want you to like help me and I'm gonna be coming to LA more and I think you know how to do a lot of this stuff in the company yeah. and what you don't I'm going to teach you so I kind of thought I had been demoted because my other boss Yanni was like in the middle of everything and I felt like I was like in the center of all the action and then not long after that Yanni left the company and that all migrated up to my office so to Tom's office where I was so pretty quickly I was kind of back in the mix of all the really amazing stuff he taught me so much about negotiating, about just the size of money. Like mm. when you're negotiating huge contracts and one of the films that we worked on was Runaway Bride, the mm -hmm. you know sequel or you know follow-up to uh, Pretty Woman. And when you're negotiating with Julia Roberts and Richard Gere and Gary Marshall as the director, you know those things, the you got a lot of ego, you got a lot of money, and you have really significant contracts. You have distribution rights, you know, foreign rights, yeah. uh, video rights, library light rights. It was it was a lot, and I learned so much. And he's treated me like a son. He's one of the most significant men in in my mm. life. Then I basically felt like I was being in the middle of it. I, I was just looking at everything people were writing. And I'm like, why is Bruce Willis signing on to this? Why is this happening? What do they have in place? What's their budget? And so I had kind of a pulse on what was being produced. And at that time, I mean, this is, you know, years ago, obviously, girls between the ages of 12 and 16 had the most disposable income of any demographic in the history of the world. Hmm. And so everyone was kind of clamoring for what can you do for them and the ideas were all pretty constipated in my opinion. They were I don't know, just nothing very special. So I started taking classic films or classic stories like Cinderella and writing a very updated, more creative version of that story. Much like the movie Roxanne was, you know, a great parallel story to the Cyrano de Bergerac stuff. Mm -hmm. So we see this a lot and so, you know, I just started writing these stories that had a strong female character set in a modern 
setting like a college or something that was something that girls of that age would be sort of aspiring to and mm -hmm. uh, you know they had a lot of traction to so i started just writing these scripts at night and just churning them out and then i don't know someone came to me with another script called hometown legend which was about high school football and alabama which both of you know it had aspects of faith because football is a faith down there and then just kind of small town dynamics and a, yeah. a very subtle faith element so we made that i directed that and did several music videos for jars of clay and various other artists that were kind of budding i guess and i just loved anything i could do to get behind the camera and work on things and learn hands-on and so we ended up selling that movie to Warner Brothers, which wasn't like a huge windfall for anybody, but you know, that's great. And more than most films get to see the light. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so I just started doing that. And then eventually I just started working. I eventually just left Lakeshore and just was writing full time and mm. doing some scripts for New Line and various places, Fox. And then this gentleman, Tom Rosenberg, who was the guy at Lakeshore, he called me and asked if I would be interested in helping him with a couple special projects, which were getting a home and a building in LA. And that sort of led me to realize I understand some of the key components to high-end LA real estate, like ego, budgets, <laughs> rights, and contracts. So very applicable from what mm. I had been doing and learned about. And then, I don't know, I, I met a couple in Pacific Palisades, which is arguably one of the more wealthy communities wedged between Santa Monica and Brentwood and mm -hmm. Malibu. And I started selling real estate for them. And I just realized along the way, this is just an obvious thing that I'm ignoring. And I know how to do it. And I'll dip my toe in the pool and see if this is something that would be a viable real job quote unquote and then i could continue to write on the side and things like that and that turned into an extremely lucrative business for me where i eventually bought them out launched my own kind of division and helped set up the luxury division for keller williams mm. i loved their business model thought it was very smart so and i bought into a couple of offices in pacific palisades in malibu and I was just rocking and rolling. And I had some very significant clients, a lot of foreign money, which was just massive. Uh, so I didn't deal with anything under about $3 million. Yeah. So that takes a lot of marketing money, a lot of attention, and a lot of time. And when your phone rings with some of those things, you don't really get to not answer. Or, yeah. Yeah. So it was terrible for my family, which we just had had our two daughters. And they were just like really young at that point but you know i had several movie stars i had you know people like kevin durant you know and then jay-z came and dealt with some of my properties and then i kind of turned into their in-house real estate guy for their clients of his management company so i did a lot of repeat business with them so it was incredibly lucrative and just really bad for my family and really had a massive impact on me in the fact that I think I became very self-centered, mm. very materialistic, 
and very image driven because a big part of what you're selling there is the image of who you are. And, um, where was your faith at this time? Were you born and raised? Obviously you went to Biola. So you, so you were a Christian growing up. You know, this is a question I get fairly often. I knew Jesus. I had given my life to Jesus as a kid, been baptized, you know, at 12 years old or whatever. And kind of church did you grow up in? It was just a community church. Hmm. So pretty broad in its faith, but you know, very, strong ideas about baptism and you know what it means to really have a relationship with Jesus but I think I never grew out of that kind of Sunday school faith or what I called the flannel graph Jesus which is a really one-dimensional the Mm -hmm. stories are overly simplistic and I could tell you all the stories I knew all the stories I knew all those things it just didn't really matter in my life and especially when I was getting big time opportunities, my faith and my life just didn't have much in common. And that just led to some big problems, especially as I started to become more well-known. I started speaking around the country and at various places like the National Association of Realtors and conventions. And I was doing a lot of speaking on marketing of homes. Mm -hmm. So... What I did is I actually took my story background and applied it to a home. What kind of a life will you live here? (laughs) And in LA in particular, most people buy a house for much bigger reasons than the price and the size. They're buying a lot of entitlement. They're buying a lot of kind of image. They're buying into sort of a classification or kind of an upper tier that maybe they're pursuing. Yeah. And so I took advantage of that in some ways that I have some regret over because I think it was a little manipulative and playing to a very negative side. Mm. But I started winning awards for my marketing. Like we had these big three foot signs that said, James Anderson for sale, have my phone number. And I realized that when you just see the yard arm in the yard, you already think it's for sale. So I was just wasting space. So I began to look at like BMW and Ritz Carlton and fractional jet ownership. These were, you know, things, these were products that my clients were Mm -hmm. accustomed to, but you know, take like BMW, their advertising says something about the product and something about who buys it. So zero to 60 and 4.3 seconds, jealousy is instantaneous. So I began to create these signs and marketing campaigns that were things like this house can beat up your house or you actually can buy happiness. There's just a short escrow. Don't tell your other homes about this one. 14 foot electrified fences make good neighbors. So I just, you know, I had all these things that we came up with and I started winning these national awards for my marketing. I was doing a lot of marketing in private jet magazines and just with an ad that said, you know, honey, stop the jet. And I would feature like six homes that were all very high tier. And instead of the address, you know, 1835, you know, Maple Lane, it actually just had a flight-based operation code and a runway length, which are the two things you need to know. And then it just said, you can call me or text me or email me. And I need two hours in your tail number and we'll meet you at your, where you land and we can show you homes. Again, so good for business, 
but it was very image conscious. I was very much creating an image for myself, selling that image. And I was just never home. Because mm. those people are like, we're coming out. Can you show us property tomorrow, which is Saturday? And I'm like, sure. And then we would go look at these houses and they were like, let's go have an amazing dinner somewhere. Pick a sweet spot for us. And so I'm eating dinner with clients. I'm just never home. And I just borrowed things from my family that I could never pay back. It led to start eating you inside. My wife's actual phrase, which was one of the most difficult things for me to ever hear is she just said, James, everyone likes you. You're very easy to like. You're very hard to love because we have to have all of you. And you are mm. right now a walking dead man. And there is nothing alive in your heart and in your soul. Mm. And you have been consumed by an empire you're creating. And we don't have any place in it. Oh, what did that do to you? Was it a slap in the face that, that woke you up or, or did you brush it off? On, well, it was a two by four to the side of the face without any question. I mean, just left me reeling. And then I just didn't want to believe that that was true. So I'm like, well, no, like, you know, think about this and think about this. And I'm sorry it's been so busy, but, you know, this is good for our family. I had a huge mistaken idea that what was good for our, me was good for our family. Mm. Absolutely not true. And it was just very self-centered and narcissistic. And just in that, I was just always around people who thought I was smart and who loved being around me and you know you never buy a drink you never eat alone and it led me to some incredibly poor decisions with messing around outside of my marriage Seriously? and yeah wow. i mean just i have such deep regrets about the liberties i took and the promises i broke and the people that i hurt and so all of this culminates with my wife just saying you need out <laughs> like you're out. We're out like we want to sell our house and we're like, we're done. So on the day that my wife was meeting with a divorce attorney, I was on the cover of Beverly Hills magazine is the guy you need to know to get the house you want. And so my personal life and my professional life were passing like a one in a nosedive and one in as a rocket ship. Yeah. And I just started thinking like, well, maybe it's more balance and more boundaries and maybe I need more staff and I need to entrust more people with this and train people better. And I just had a, in this crappy hotel room where I spent several months, I just had like a, just such a clear epiphany that the problem was entirely me. And um, so I started going to counseling you know, I went for myself. I went with my wife. Mine was pretty. So she was open to. At a certain point, we were separated for about six months. And I, I really, truly believe my marriage was over. Like, even though instantly I was like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? This is not what I want. I really had to respect the fact that my wife was like, you know, no, like you don't get to come back from things like this. And I just wasn't a whole person. So why it would be like 
paying top dollar for a beat up car. It's just who needs that kind of problems. And I had violated our marriage vows. I had really been just a poor husband in almost every way. How did you meet your wife? Where did, where did you guys meet? I actually met her at Biola. You know, we, and then we both really wanted to stay and it was, it was great. It just wasn't healthy for me. And so I don't know, I went to some really intense therapy and just said to some people, I have money and I have time. I will do whatever you say to do with my whole heart Mm -hmm. and hold nothing back. And I will go where you tell me to go. So they're like, you need to go to the, see this guy in Minnesota. You need to go see this guy in Orange County. You need to go see this guy in Northern California, whatever the case may be. And, um, man, it was a painful time to peel back my life and look at those things we were just talking about, my own story and the things that were driving me and my need to prove something to myself and to the world and to build something that was solely mine and just and something that made me money and got me respect and just all the wrong motivations. And so... Um, Yeah, I had a real moment with Jesus where I just realized the Jesus I knew looked an awful lot like Kenny Loggins in a 70s album. (laughs) And that guy will not hold your life. And I needed to find the big boy, full 360 Jesus. And when I did, those stories from the flannel graph came alive in realizing what Jesus came for, what he offered me, understanding more of like the, even the roles of the Trinity, of what God's character and essence is and his heart, understanding the spirit and what its role is in, you know, in my life and in the Trinity and understanding Jesus in a way that uh, just kind of broke all those Lego pieces that I had down and, uh, very, very, very important. And I think for the first time I understood grace and unconditional love. How old were you when all this happened? When your wife separated, when, when Uh, she moved out, when she, 37. And by then we'd been married for 12 years or something. And so that was something like nine years ago then. Cause you're like one year older than me, if I remember right. Yes. Uh, you're, you graduated in 91. I yeah. graduated in 92. So yeah, this was in the end of 2010. Okay. So once you started to really put some focus and energy, if you need to relight. Yeah. Once um, I realized the problem was me and that changes needed to happen, things move pretty rapidly where I was just saying, I'll walk out of my business. I'll walk away and never come back. Yeah. Maybe we need for the first time to ask God, what do you want with my life? I'd never asked that. I just had kind of asked him to bless the things I was doing Yeah. largely. Cause I, I was, I mean, just, oh my gosh, the gall of what I was sort of proposing to God was blessing me will be a good PR move for you. I mean, just the the arrogance of that is like cringe inducing now for me. So I don't know. uh, Right. Because in our thirties, we think we're all that in a bag of peanuts sometimes. 
and I was being told I was, and I really needed that and I needed to believe it. Yeah. So, oh man, it stuck to me like Velcro and so I don't, in the, uh, I don't know, beginning of 2011, I decided I was just going to leave my business, walk out cold Turkey, which I did and really just focus on counseling what was going on inside of me. And I just was saying to some of these, you know, therapists, I have something that's plugged into me that is creating enormous power over my life and driving me like a lawnmower with no control. And I am a tornado and I am wrecking houses and (laughs) churches and uh, trailer parks. I am just destruction. And I want to find that cord and unplug it. And so can you help me? And they did. So we decided to sell our house, kind of went into a Israelite, you know, time of (laughs) reflection and wilderness, wilderness for sure. Yeah. And in that I had started reaching out to a few people. I had a couple of amazing opportunities that were like Monday, we'll have an offer for you. And they never came like God just closed the door so clearly. And I had reached out to this guy who was a mentor to my dad and I knew him well, really well connected guy. And he called me and he said, James is everything on the table, like salary, location, work, everything. And I said, it is. And my wife and I are in agreement on that. And he said, I would like for you then to talk to Jim Daly at Focus on the Family, which was very surprising to me just because I'd mainly worked for myself for most of my life or been highly independent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of in the yearbook, least likely to work at Focus on Family. <laughs> um, in the department, you know, in Focus on the Family, which I had no idea how to focus on my family, in the Department of Public Affairs, which had been the very life I had been leading. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, my wife and I just kind of felt like, man, maybe this is a super healthy environment, even if it's not easy. And I came to Colorado, we flew out to Colorado, and we, I met with Jim and I met with a whole group of people there. And I came away with this feeling that we should pursue this all the way to the end. And like, if God closes the door, great. but let's lean into this. I mean, which was a real step of faith. And we were just saying this has to be God's leading. So sure enough, literally our house went under contract and I got the offer from focus like within the same minute, (laughs) uh, came in on like basically banged into each other and kicked both calls into my voicemail. And it's just like, Whoa, there's a voicemail. There's two. And it's like, Oh my gosh. So God's leading was just undeniable. Yeah. I felt like he was honoring the significant changes we had made, the sacrifices we had made, the things we'd given up. And I think he was honoring my wife and her commitment to our family and her commitment to our marriage, even though I had not upheld my own side of it. I think that he was very much honoring my wife and What was her reasoning for sticking around and not just leaving? I would say it's twofold. 
My wife believes she got the clearest message ever from God, which was, I want you to stay in it and I'm going to do something with it. So that was great news for me, obviously. Was that hard for her? Was it hard for her family? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I could definitely imagine it was hard for her, but was it hard for her family as well? Because it was. They're an amazing, generous, beautiful Christian family. But, you know, to go to my father in law and say, I have broken the vows I stood on stage and Whoa. made to you and your daughter. Yeah. And there's really not words to put beyond, I am deeply sorry and I have incredible regret and I also realize that there are things I need to learn and do to ensure that this will never happen again what was his response it was very honest and very loving like you just said like this is the part that's really hard for us and this is the part of me that wants to protect Carrie. And this is the part of me that as a father can't stand this. This is the part that brings me pain of my own. And yet if we're not a forgiving family to someone who's really repentant, then we're not being what Jesus called us to do. And it's really up to Carrie that if she has said, I'm going to be in it and we're going to grow and repair and restore our marriage. Then we'll go. That's our leading. We will follow whatever her heart is. And man, talk about just tears of, I don't know. It's just such a deep pain to realize someone has to forgive you Mm. for something so significant. And I think I had to realize, I'm not sure I would do the same, (laughs) which is again, just such an awful thing to realize about yourself. And um, it was just obviously a huge moment in my life. And well, I really feel like right now there's someone listening or multiple people listening right now that they're in a position right now where you were, where they are on the verge of breaking those vows or they have broken those vows, but they just haven't manned up or womaned up and accepted responsibility and are afraid of the consequences I had made an active decision and a promise to myself I would go to my grave and never speak of it. So what what was it inside of you that brought you to that place that you owned up? Carrie just confronted me. She knew. She didn't know who. She had all the wrong ideas about that. But I really think God was prompting her that just something is wrong. My wife's a woman of just deep faith. Mm just an incredibly godly woman and uh, someone I'm so lucky to have and certainly don't deserve and certainly didn't deserve then. But she was just like, something is up and I'm seeing messages on your phone. And if that's true, I'm gone. Mm. And so, I mean, I wish I even could say I had enough guilt to own up to it and confess to it. I mean, to anyone but I had literally made a promise to myself, an active decision. I would never speak of it. And I would go to my grave and pretend it never happened. Even if that meant defending that lie, um, Mm. or, you know, denying actively stuff. And I don't know. I mean, I really think that God, God just broke my heart open in a way that 
I'm so thankful for. And like I said, there, when we tell stories, there's always part of our story and someone else's story. I met a lot of guys in my counseling and recovery that shared with me parts of their story that were deeply encouraging. My wife and I met couples who shared their story and their journey that are a huge part of why we think our marriage survived. It gave us a belief that it could. And I think there are always people that hear a story and just say that there's part of that in my life. So yeah, I mean, I hope if anything, I think I always want or certainly strive to, to whatever degree of success. I always want people to leave a conversation with me and feel like, man, that's a big God. <laughs> that is a great God mm. that that guy is talking about and has found mm. and has obviously made massive changes or helped James make massive changes in his life. And maybe I don't know that God. So I feel like part of my own new life in this is to honor that story and to mm. honor it with honesty and mm. vulnerability and kind of no excuses. Like it was, it's on me. So really, I think taking ownership of my actions, attitudes, failures, and arrogance, I think honors God in a way that is a pittance compared to the grace and mercy mm. and love that he extended to me and extended to me through my friends and my wife and my family and her family. And I think that's important. So you get the job at focus. I do. And you're coming home in a sense. Yes. Now where we live was a field when I left, which, <laughs> you know, it's funny. So yeah, so coming home had some of its own challenges for me. Just, I really liked and thrived in a big city, in a big pond. But that was part of what we realized was unhealthy. Mm. And then going to focus meant, first of all, they just shut the office down like at 530. They're like, we don't want you here. There's no badge of honor for working late. I had no idea how to do that super good for me. Yeah. I had to work for people and do things their way, even when that didn't make sense for me. And that was tremendously valuable to me. I absolutely loved the people I worked with. They were generous and loving and I shared my story there openly and they valued it starting with Jim Daly all the way down to the people on my team and department and mm -hmm. And some of the things I learned there just from a job wise of things I was doing and fundraising and advocating and speaking for the ministry and building relationships and strategic relationships, I could not do my job right now if I hadn't done it. So every job I've ever had has built part of who I am today and what I do well. So you're at focus working on your marriage. Yeah. I can tell you right now, I mean, you remember my story. I worked 12 and a half years at Focus yeah. for Dr. Dobson in the broadcasting department. For me, that time there was absolutely incredible because 
I was a young single guy. I got married. I had kids. And I was listening to the daily broadcast on a daily basis, getting mm. mentored right. by all of these great Christian authors, speakers, family experts, and really getting a master class in how to be a husband, how to be a father. Wow. What was that season like for you to be around that kind of a culture mm. where we're done at 530? Yeah. Go home. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I had no idea how to do that. And it's not my natural tendency, but I just have so many memories right now from when we moved to Colorado. And I would often say, this is something I would have missed. Mm. Like the mm. classic commercial moment where you're holding onto the back of the bike seat and my daughter like rides out of my hand, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I would have missed this for sure. Yeah. I would have been either like a divorced dad or... Only seeing him on weekends. Yeah, I mean, it's just a or fact. Even if that, I, because you're getting calls on Saturdays and Sundays. Yeah, it just, there are so many ways that that could have been just missed. But I also just think even if that wasn't the case, I just would have been working and I would have been striving and trying to perform and impress and build. And instead I'm home and I'm not taking work home with me. And I had to learn what to even do with my time. Like, how do you downshift into home? Like, and just being there and not being consumed by work. And my thoughts always of, Hey, you know what I could do? This would be smart. I should do this. You know, it just was always contriving and, you know, imagining these great plans that I was going to implement the next day. And I just was not present. So to come there, learn to come home at five o'clock and just be a husband and a dad and a friend. And like, that was incredible. And, and probably also win your wife back, really win her heart back by spending that time with her and really pouring into your marriage too. And I think just demonstrating a commitment to our family over my own aspirations and, you know, the empire of James. So I think her seeing that, her seeing humility and passion, I think those are hard things to balance. I was very passionate about my work at Focus, the relationships, the reasons why, the value and kind of the, what I had been entrusted with by people there. And then, you know, I also just, like I said, there were a lot of things that I'm like, I would do this differently as an entrepreneur, as a guy who's run businesses and own businesses, I would do this different. And just the humility of saying, okay, I'm passionate, but I came here to serve because of God, a direct leading and not to be, in charge of the world. <laughs> and so it really was really good for me. And it was good for our family. Being here is really good and healthy for me, just from a striving standpoint. I think it's good for my family. It's really good for my kids. We've developed some beautiful like friendships here that are intimate and just life giving for me. Hmm. That's that's a gift. Hmm. Not something I thought I may not ever have again because I had burned some really amazing friends in Los Angeles where 
climbing the ladder? I think what it is is just when you're in a long-term relationship and they find out one day you haven't been honest with them or let them into a huge part of your life and hidden things, and especially things of the magnitude where they're very emotional about those things. They're very protective of Carrie and my girls. And we shared a strong faith, at least in word and for me, that I was just, I mean, it's kind of like, hey, like this is a guy we've never really met then. Oh, and ooh. I don't know, I just had, yeah. I just had really sense. violated what is true friendship. Mm. They'd offered me great friendship. I had returned cheap friendship. Mm. So how long were you at Focus? About two and a half years, which was not my intention. I went into it thinking this is maybe a lifelong calling. I'm gonna give it my full self. And along the way, fairly early on actually, I think within the first you know five months or something, I kind of got this, I used to get these little folders and it was like kind of an assignment from up in Jim's office, like go check this out. And it was a like a little write-up of the New Canaan Society and this national retreat they were gonna be having in San Francisco. And so what they were asking me to do is like, we want you to go and we want a book report. What do they believe? What's their ethos? You know, they're all over the place. So what do they really do? Mm -hmm. Like give us like a, something we can get a handle on and kind of understand, you know, where they stand. Um, so who was New Canaan? What was that report that you came back with? I came back with like kind of my mouth open and I was just saying, we need to be a part of this because these are men that are standing up in their faith, standing up in a hard culture that are working in real jobs with real magnitude. They are leaders mm -hmm. and their faith is real and they're not having stupid conversations about deal making or football or whatever. Like these guys are doing the honest work of telling their stories and you know, I think unpacking life and yet they have so much fun and they, like we laughed. I had a great time. I met some guys that I'm still friends with and I love, there was no religious spirit to it. I described New Canaan as being big on Jesus, low on religion with a penchant for cigars and scotch. And so, you know, NCS has its own label of cigars we have made yeah. in Naples, Florida by a guy. And that's kind of part of our DNA, not that you have to have a cigar, but that it's kind of an important part of people sitting down like this and saying, I've got five inches of cigar here to just do nothing but be with these guys. So it's a great way to sit down. And then if you've decided the guys you're sitting down with are guys you can tell your story to, hear their story, share stories, and be a part of growth, that's a pretty amazing investment, if you ask me. So where did New Canaan come from? Who started it? How long has it been around? Those kinds of... So New Canaan started, it's actually a little bed, a wealthy bedroom community outside of Manhattan. So the guy that started it, you know, right about, I don't know, 2000, somewhere around there. So it's been going for almost 20 years. He was like the youngest partner ever at Goldman Sachs. 
came from a Wheaton blue blood family and he had a similar feeling that my work life and my faith life have no ability to connect. And he was really swept up into worldly things, the New York kind of high flying, you know, almost a caricature of what you see in like as a New York butt kicker. And he had, which is kind of a lot of what you, you had in LA. When I met him, we had some very similar parts of our stories and I think the first moment I met him, I just said, I, I just want to thank you for sharing your story so openly because it echoes into mine. And I just value people who can talk honestly. And But Jim had this moment. His name is, is Jim Lane. And uh, he's been a huge blessing in my own life. Mm. And Jim had a moment where he realized I have created a lot of carnage in my life, my family, my relationships, and I have never invested in male friends. So he sort of joked, he lived in a house, you know, with his wife, three daughters and two dogs, which also happened to be female. So he was like, you know, and <laughs> Surrounded then it, with estrogen. He is. Yeah. Yeah. And at work, it's like the ultimate boys club. And what he realized is that those relationships really are ones that are not friendships. They're people I compete with and they don't share some of my bigger values that I want to get back to. So he started New Canaan Society and, you know, in his living room with eight guys who I think were almost appalled by the level of honesty, but were so attracted to it. Eric Metaxas was one of those guys back before he really started to become a well-known writer. And I think the aroma of honesty, vulnerability, and an active 360 faith, mm-hmm. I think that aroma is like fresh bread. And so that group began to grow. I think at one point he had almost 200 guys in his living room, which God bless his wife. That's amazing. And then they had some guys that were saying, I am going to Orlando or I've come from Winston-Salem and I want this. Is there a way that I could sort of, you know, franchise this? But we kind of talk about it like dipping your torch in the fire and then just taking it with you, you know, to some place where you're lighting another fire. And so that began to work where we were spinning off chapters. I mean, this is obviously before my time, but, you know, chapters were being formed and the organization was beginning to look at how do we grow? How do we keep a DNA of what we are and not lose sight of like simple guys in a living room? guys in a cigar garage, <laughs> you know, whatever, yeah. being honest, doing that and not get into organizational stuff. And yeah, it really took off from there to the point that now we have almost 70 chapters around the country and 26 states. And we have right around 24,000 guys on a mailing list that's pretty active. So the reach is pretty amazing. And someday only crossing into heaven will we ever know the impact and the long term like just the number of guys who've crossed the threshold into something like this or how many guys have been on the verge of my story 
And because of NCS or because of their friendships, because of those relationships, they didn't cross that line. Veered back. And yeah. that'll be an amazing thing to celebrate. You know, harps and singing as we float in the clouds, that kind of stuff. Well, <laughs> you know, that'll be just freaking awesome. So, how did you get involved with New Canaan? How did you become the CEO? What were those steps? Yeah, I just wanted to be involved. So I was like, man, I'll be here. I'm a guy that wants to be about this. Shared my story very candidly with several people. Got to know Jim Lane, our founder, and our board members and lots of guys around chapters. And when I would travel, I would always try to make a meeting. So if they had a NCS meeting in the city, where I was when I was there, I'd always try to go. And I really loved it. I really was like, man, these are my people. Mm -hmm. And these are guys that I would be so interested in being around. And I love the ethos of this organization. And so from there, you know, one point I got a call and they just said, would you ever talk to us about coming in as our president and kind of growing a lot of our operational structure and, you know, kind of being on a track that would eventually move you up into the CEO, but just taking some time to really apprentice again with Jim and just be around and being a part of it. And in one of my few great moments, I asked if I had to move to New York or, you know, a bedroom yeah. community and they were yeah. like, yes. And I'm like, all right, well, let me pray about it with my wife. And we had just two awful weeks in communication. Two weeks into it, I'm like, I need to get back to these guys. I have absolutely zero peace about this. And I'm just going to tell them no. I'm not looking for a job. I'm invested at Focus. I love what they do. But I just think maybe the only place worse than L.A. would be New York for me in particular. Mm. And um, I don't know, my wife That's commented- That's gonna take a great deal of self-awareness to be able to realize that you weren't quite wired to be able to handle that. Yeah, now, I, know, I think that, that, that was a lot of therapy and counseling. Yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. unpacking all my crap and- Yeah. But my wife commented later, that was one of the first times that I had ever chosen our family over what was good for me. Oh, cause she knew that it was a very attractive thing for me. Yeah. And I was like, man, this would be really fun and really amazing and such a great challenge. And, uh, so that was one of my few rare, great moments, especially as a husband and a father, <laughs> just being like, I choose us. And, uh, I'm like, yes, man, yeah. make that a standing stone. So I don't know. I had done some interviews with the board. I had done some communication and kind of opened the kimono about what I thought was valuable and some things like that. And at some time later, they deemed it worthy to call me back and just said, James, what if you didn't have to live in New York? And I said, well, I would like to talk to you very seriously then because I love what you do. I think it would be such a great challenge and it would be so fun. And frankly, it would be part of God's great redemption of my story. Ooh. So if I feel like I could do it safely and I could be healthy and my wife agreed with that, maybe more importantly, yeah. that would be big. 
So you said yes. Said yes. Started they there. They said yes. They said yes. Started there, like you know, January one of 2015 or whatever, and really wore my operational hat mostly, just building structure and coming from sales. You do a lot of repeat things, and especially if you can, your business will thrive if you do things once, and then make that the operational standard. Like this is standard protocol for a call that comes in like this, or we're going to do an open house or we have a showing or those kind of things. So I started just doing a lot of that and just getting around, around our network and meeting guys and hearing their stories, hearing yeah. their experience, learning, listening, that kind of stuff. And then I guess it was the end of the summer in 2017 that Jim, our founder departed and as our CEO, and I was moved up into that CEO role and, and then also put on the board just to be a part of mm -hmm. that voice and kind of the boots on the ground. And it's been the most difficult thing I've ever attempted in my life, mm. which if you figure I worked in Hollywood and I sold some of the most expensive real estate in the world, I think that's kind of saying something. <laughs> And uh, I think just leading well, and we have a lot of A-type driver climber people. That's who our men, you know, it's a lot of our demographic. And But I'm really passionate about it. I love meeting people. I love hearing their stories. I love getting, or I don't love getting, but I love that I get calls from men who are in crisis. And they'll say, I didn't know who to call, but I knew you would be someone who would understand. And um, oh. that's something I, I'm very proud of that. And I value that very much, even though, you know, next step is okay, but we got to get you into a couple honest relationships by you. I live 1500 miles from you and I love you and you can call anytime. But I'd love to be a part of helping you build yourself up, make some of this right, restore some of the things, and I think help you see that you are a good man and that really the problem is not that you're not a good man, it's that you're in the wrong place and you can't stay there. So let's make change, let's make move, let's alter course. Mm. Man, I think so many men have never heard that and they feel defined by their accomplishments, their wealth, their prestige, or they feel cloaked and identified with their failures, their shame, regret, damage done, you know, just their failures, I think. And it's like, man, that's just not at all what Jesus is offering any of us from square one. It's just that it's not who he is. So what does an NCS, New Canaan Society, meeting look like? What does it take to be involved with NCS? How does one get plugged in? Yep. It's pretty easy. You need a pulse and usually a morning. That's it. So I love our structure that we have. There's no dues. There's no fees. There's no secret handshake to get in. It's open to everybody all the time, publicly made known. We have no paid chapter leaders. 
so that no one has an undue amount of influence with any one of these places. And we don't meet in churches because that often just has a lot of baggage for various people. It means different things to different people. So some of the people who cross our threshold are people who would never step foot in a church or who have said, I'll never go back because of what happened to me. We have a very high value and a very high view of the church. And hopefully one of the great outcomes of your involvement with NCS is understanding a full 360 Jesus and a big Jesus, and then finding him in a church community that's additive to your life as you know, on top of your involvement with NCS. So chapter meetings range, they have huge latitude locally. We value uh, local influence and their ability to drive and have, you know, a lot of latitude. We value that among any other structural component. So you have some chapters that meet for a cigar and maybe a cocktail because People are sure it's not a Bible study if it's <laughs> happening in that environment. Yeah. Some of them, a lot of them are morning meetings. And the goal of the morning meeting is you come in, you meet somebody great, and you're like, hey, Steve, I enjoyed our conversation. Do you want to grab lunch? Right, Your office is right around the corner from mine, and maybe we can continue this. I'd love to hear a little more about your journey. So the idea is you come in, you meet guys, which could be, a you know, a chapter could be anywhere from 20 guys to you know, 150 guys in some of our big areas, big chapters, but the meeting in itself, you kind of live and die by that. Like your real growth, the real value of NCS comes when you meet someone there that echoes your story, or you see this guy's like one lap ahead of me on Mm. my story, or this is somebody I really want to learn from or what he said. I don't think I ever got from my dad or from my upbringing. Mm -hmm. And I I would like to lean into that guy and hear more. So the real value is actually in what happens outside the meetings. But the meetings typically are a guy telling his story and telling it pretty honestly or talking about something like here's maybe, you know, I've had big success in business, but I've got a 16-year-old that doesn't want to hang out with me and doesn't want me to be part of her learning to drive because I've been Mm. vacant Mm. and this is what my success has cost me. Or I think the three things any man needs to learn in order to be a real man are these. And this is why from my own experience. So, you know, kind of our standard speaker communication is don't sell anything. Don't preach to anybody. Don't try to fix anybody. And we don't want to read what we could read about in a magazine or a newspaper. Like this is the open the kimono opportunity for you to bless a guy with the freedom of understanding he's not alone. Mm. So tell your story. The website is? It's uh, newcanaansociety.org. And Canaan has two A's together, but comes right out of the Bible. So if you can't find it, it's in Joshua. (laughs) But... Yeah. All right, James, let's go to rapid fire questions. Okay, my gosh, here we go. Rapid fire. Fire. All right, cigars or pipe? 
I'm actually going to say pipe. Really? Here's the reason why. It is like a a labor of love to keep a pipe lit. <laughs> it's just hard and it's a commitment. And uh, I feel like, I don't know, the bite is less, but I obviously enjoy both. They're occupational hazards for me. Favorite pairing with your pipe or cigar? Probably a pretty stout whiskey or believe it or not, a Coca-Cola. That's what I got right uh-huh, here. Uh-huh, there That's it is. Right Proof's in the pudding. Yep. I don't know why, but... Yeah, there's something for me about the sweetness of a Coke with the cigar. The flavors of both just come alive. Yeah. I hope someone's listening that's going to send you some sponsorship, you know, opportunities. If you're, <laughs> we're pumping Coke, yeah. All right. Uh, most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? It's probably not anything real impressive. In fact, probably the best highest value cigar I've ever had was somebody who gave it to me, so I wouldn't even know. What it was worth, how much Yeah, but, you know, we've got some guys that are serious about them that, you know, are handing you a Cuban cigar, and I'm like, dude, I think this is maybe above my pay grade, and (laughs) this might be totally wasted on me. So you give me a $12 cigar, and it's like wine. Unless you know good wine, you wouldn't know the difference between a... $12 $12 bottle and a $40 bottle, you know, so. What were those expensive cigars that you've been handed worth it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Any, any moment like this is great. Favorite pipe tobacco? Mm. There's one that I've gotten that's like an English leather. <laughs> like, I think I chose them like, I remember this cologne. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's like the quintessential, like, England, you know, old man's club. Yeah. It's like what, you know, if you ever went in and somebody's dad or grandfather smoked a pipe in the house, it was like, oh my gosh, does that smell so good? So, yeah, I think that's the name of it. Yeah. Favorite food? It probably just has to be pizza. I don't know. It's not. It just ministers to my soul. Um, Our family's really big on like communal eating, which Mm. is like fondue and then rocklets. If you ever had that, which is like it's cheese that you melt underneath a grill. And on top of it, you do like ham and vegetables and it just takes a long time. And it's something you do like on Christmas Eve special. We do it a lot. Like we probably average one a month. So we like to do that occasionally for Thanksgiving, just yeah. to kind, just to kind of do something different. My wife has one of those grills where you throw the meats and the vegetables up on top, and underneath you put like a piece of bread with some cheese on it, or you melt yep. the cheese, and that's, so, good, stuff. that's yeah, good stuff. I think anything with bread tends to be like my that's my spirit animal is a loaf of French bread. <laughs> so when it starts to snow, I'm like freak out. I'm like, do we have bread? Like we can get snowed in. I need bread. I need cheese and I need wine. My wife's like, you're a freaking, you're a freaking mess. Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, Star Wars without a doubt. Marvel or DC? No idea. Okay. Honestly, completely ignorant. And I have girls, so that's not really somewhere we've gone Although Star Wars, it's so fun to share that with them. Yeah. Especially now where you have a really strong female character that I'm like, look at how awesome Rey is. What a butt kicker she is. And and yet she's not perfect. And 
Like this is an awesome thing to see together. That's awesome. That's cool. Dogs, cats, neither or both? Absolutely neither. So you're not an animal person. I just don't, I don't understand it. Like I really don't. Maybe I don't have enough bandwidth in my heart. Like I'm like the Grinch maybe where in order for me to love a dog, my heart would have to grow two sizes. <laughs> and cats, I think, are literally a scourge of the earth. So, Are you a reader? Very much so. What are some of your favorite books? I often say, like in my top five, um, there are two books by Philip Yancey. One is The Jesus I Never Knew, which I think was like a foundation of my new faith. And then he wrote another one called What's So Amazing About Grace, mm -hmm. which again, just blew my mind, like really, really challenged me. And I was like, I don't know that I believe this. I, mm. I, I believe it. I just don't know that I believe it. I don't demonstrate I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. There's an amazing book by a guy named Fred Waitskin who wrote, he's the author of Searching for Bobby Fisher, mm -hmm. and this is his life story. And it's the story of his life. It's called The Last Marlin, and it's really the story of him and his dad. And it's kind of like the only place that they ever connected was on a boat looking for marlin and fishing on the East Coast out by Bimini or things like that. Absolutely unbelievable. I think it just tells so much about a person's life. Joseph Campbell's Here with a Thousand Faces, I think sheds light on every story you've ever heard and probably most people you know. Mm. It was mind blowing that this is a formula that is so true, like making water from hydrogen and oxygen, just incredible. And then I'm reading a book right now that I laugh so hard in bed that my wife is often like, get up and go downstairs. <laughs> and it's called like The World's Largest Man by Harrison Scott Key. And it is hilarious, insightful. It's the story of his family and starting his own family, becoming a father. And I just find it naked, beautiful, and just he makes me laugh so most memorable cigar experience or pipe experience it would have been the night before i got married mm. and you know a bachelor party has a different kind of context if you're you know us and uh we went out at this hotel and just sat in this cabana and i was surrounded by the most influential people in my life mm. and my dad, my brother, my brother, soon to be brother-in-law, my youth pastor, friends from college, friends from high school, friends from when I was a kid. And we sat around, we smoked cigars, and the entire evening, the program was tell your most favorite story of James. So oh. some of them were like, I don't know what the hell he was thinking. He was, you know... <laughs> hanging on to that thing for dear life, getting dragged around the field. Or I just remember being like, this is crazy, but what do we have to lose? Or I saw him do this and I thought, what unbelievable chutzpah. Or this is when he loved me well. Or I remember this moment that was a turning point in his life. Or, 
his generosity to me or the way he demonstrates love. And so I just think most people never have a chance to be built up like that and be spoken over. Mm. Mm. And it was kind of like that was the seminal blessing or sort of rite of passage that you have in some cultures where they say, this is what we love about you. This is what's unique to you. And this is what we value in you. And we want to speak that into you and like launch you well. It was a great moment, especially as you're going into marriage, um, regardless of whether or not I was great at marriage. <laughs> All right. Final two questions. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? And can't name Jesus just because everyone's going to name Jesus. Yeah, that's good. That's a good rule because give me a break. I'm glad I had a little time to think about this because this is significant. So I'm going to choose a current, okay. a past, All right. and someone of faith. Okay. So the current. Current would be my younger brother, Rick, who is just one of the better human beings I've ever met. Blessed to have him as a brother. Love my relationship with him. And I think most older brothers do not have a younger brother that they can truly look up to. Mm. That is an incredible compliment and I love him dearly. And uh, I would sit with him just about anywhere that we could sit and talk. And where is he at? He's here. Is he? So another great blessing that is he a cigar guy, not to our extent, but but he'll do it occasionally. Absolutely. He'll, in fact, he'll a, probably enjoy a pipe. That's going to be his, I want to have a um, smoke with him sometime. Vice of choice. Absolutely. I'll bring him next time. Yeah. All right. Past. I'm going to say past, maybe like Winston Churchill. Okay. Like cigars was just an ornery cuss. <laughs> like, yeah. And like looking back an undeniable leader. So you look back on some leaders and you realize Boy, in hindsight, that was not a great example. His work seems to have stood up. And you want to look at a leader, that's pretty amazing. All right. Last um, one. Someone of the faith, I would choose Charles Spurgeon. He's a big cigar guy as well. Absolutely. In fact, it was one of my great things is, you know, he has this quote that we use a lot at NCS, which is, Tonight I shall intend to smoke a cigar to the glory of God. Before I go to bed. Before I go to bed. And yep. uh, here's another one about a cigar being what? a great beginning to a great conversation. And he's arguably one of the most quotable people I've ever come across in all of my reading. Who you look at like what he's saying, even just like one or two sentences. Yeah. And that is something you can put in your pocket and take with you. All right. Last question. If we're to meet one year from today mm. and I got a bottle of champagne, what are we celebrating? Boy, another great question. I would like to think a year from now, you and I would be asking, how is James doing as a father to two girls and as a husband who is rebuilding that marriage over a lifetime. And I'd like to think I said, I'd be able to say, I'm doing 
good things with my daughters and I'm investing more than ever. And I have a, I have great relationships with my daughters. I, I like, I love being with them. They're really fun people. How old are they now? 10 and 12. Okay. So we're in kind of a fun and challenging age, but I like that they're figuring out what really matters and learning about decisions that matter. That's mm-hmm. a great moment to be a dad. And I'd like to think that my wife would say, James has continued his journey of his own faith that's vibrant and growing and that manifests itself in our home and in our friendships, in his work, how he serves and how he shows love to me, you know, to my wife. I think over building anything, I mean, certainly I have ideas about growing NCS and just getting more chapters to open because I think they're good for people, not as a growth mandate, but just offering it to more people, helping people find it and just seeing more guys come in and find freedom in it. I certainly have those kind of goals, but that's probably part of my old self or the... Mm the guy in me that wants to do. And I think being a dad and a husband is a lot about being and about learning what they need from me and then figuring out how to do that against every bit of human nature that is selfish and self-serving. I guarantee you, James, that there are people listening right now that they needed to hear that. They need to hear that your priority is your family and that all the business stuff, it's going to happen, but it's out of that space in your life that is full from your family that everything else will just kind of come together and it'll work itself out. Well, and I feel like God's going to grow my work to whatever he needs. Right. Yeah. My job is to go where he's working yeah. <laughs> and do the yeah. things he's starting. Right. Yeah. As far as my family, I've already been given that marching order, like yeah. grow, serve, love, lead and bless. That's what I already have that job. I don't have to look to God to say, what do you want me to do here this year? Yeah. It's just, and I, man, am I ever a work in progress? So for everything I've learned, everything I've been through, the good things I've done, Man, there's still just the old me that wakes up every day, brushes the teeth in the mirror, and has to decide which James will live this day. And hopefully I do a better job between now and next year because I'd like to enjoy that champagne with you. James Anderson, CEO of New Canaan Society. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thank you. Hey everyone, before we go, I wanted to talk about today's sponsor, Blinkist. James just talked about his love for reading, but when you factor in all the hours it takes to read a single book, it's really an investment. Or maybe you listen to audiobooks. Even at 1.5 speed, that's a commitment. James mentioned Eric Metaxas earlier in the interview, and uh, earlier this year, I downloaded his Bonhoeffer audiobook on Audible. Did you know that one's almost a 23-hour-long book? 
Well, I'm a big fan of a book summary service called Blinkist. Blinkist has a library of more than 2,500 of the top books on the market. Most of them can be read in less than 15 minutes. Imagine taking all the key thoughts and stories of a book and distilling it down into a 15-minute read. That's what Blinkist does. Whether you're interested in leadership, marketing, entrepreneurship, personal development, sales, management, marketing, motivation, psychology, economics, finance, self-help, even marriage, parenting, history, and more. Blinkist has something for you. If you click on the link in the show notes or go to holysmokes.club slash blink, that's holysmokes.club slash blink, you can try them for a free seven-day trial. And if you subscribe by clicking that affiliate link, it's a way to get a great service and help support the costs of editing and hosting for this podcast. So go to holysmokes.club club slash blink to check out blinkist thanks for listening to this edition of the holy smokes podcast i'm steve Ryder, saying do good be awesome